Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, as always, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Patty, how are you? I am positively splendid, Gary. It's a very sunny London at the moment. I don't know how it is down there in Cork, um, but London, it's, you know, it's 20 degrees. It's only half 10, so I'm happy. Surprisingly nice here in Cork as well, so may it last. Phenomenal. Anyway, Gary, we're not here to talk about the weather. We are here to talk about something that sounds like really, uh, I don't know, cliche or catchphrasey or what a, whatever, right? But it's the top 10 things that you learned while studying to become a doctor, right? Now, I presume, I'm going to go out on a limb here and presume that you learned more than 10 things studying to be a doctor. I would hope at least. Few um, more, yeah. Yeah, um, and you did quite well. You're now a certified, qualified, whatever, doctor. So we should actually be introducing you as Dr. Lord Gary McGowan. Um, but anyway, that's what we're here to talk about. So maybe you want to just, you know, congratulate yourself for a few minutes about becoming a doctor. Maybe you want to talk about that experience. And then we can kick this off for real and discuss those top 10 things top 10 things you learned while studying become to become a doctor and obviously you know that's part of explaining the process yeah so for those of you like maybe you're newer to the triage podcast just give you a bit of background about where i'm coming from here so obviously i have a background in fitness and a background in clearly lifting weights because of how jacked I am. But no, I have a background in personal training, okay? So that's what we've been doing for many, many years now is helping people get fit and do so in a science-based, evidence-based manner to make their lives as easy as possible and integrate fitness into it. That's what we do at Triage. That's what we've always been doing, okay? So that's where I'm coming from. That's my perspective. And I also did physiotherapy previously. So that was my previous degree, which obviously has some healthcare elements associated with it. And then also... Um, I was a graduate entry student uh, into medicine. So I wasn't coming in out of leaving cert. Um, I was coming in with a little bit of, you know, maturity, a bit of life, life experience, and of course that previous degree and the personal training experience. So it's a little bit of a different uh, maybe pathway into medicine or mindset going into medicine than some other people might have because I was probably going in maybe with maybe a philosophy of health, uh, an understanding of some of the basics of health and things like nutrition and training understanding that maybe other people wouldn't have. So that gives me maybe a little bit of a better perspective, maybe better in some ways, maybe worse than others, okay? So that's where I'm coming from. And as a result, what I wanna do now, to you're obviously primarily a fitness audience listening, I wanna discuss those kind of top 10 things that I've learned along the way that I feel might give you an insight into how I think about health now from my perspective, but also give you an insight into how that gap between fitness and medicine can be bridged because that's something that is a core long-term mission for us at Triage, okay? So yeah, I suppose just before you get into it, we should kind of also state that that, that is the, the goal at Triage. We basically want to make personal training, we'll say. We want to make this a kind of frontline healthcare component, right? I don't think it is as supportive 
of people's health as it could be the personal training industry i mean or the health coaching industry and um, and i think we can do a lot more to ensure that people actually reach their health goals people actually you know reach their best self and um, with health habits we'll say you know training nutrition sleep stress management and um, there are other things that we do want to push uh into in we'll call it this kind of like preventative medicine sphere because a lot of the things that we talk about they are actually incredibly beneficial for you know preventing disease and that's where we kind of want to see the the business moving and at least over the next couple of years and that's the vision at the moment so that's the perspective of triage gary what are the top 10 things you learned yeah so firstly one that's intrinsically related to fitness and that is that just because you lift weights and eat a healthy diet doesn't mean you don't need to see your doctor it doesn't mean that you should be avoiding medication it doesn't mean that you don't need basic health interventions like you know vaccines and things like that these things are still important so in many cases medication is still required for people who are super healthy in terms of their training and nutrition practices examples of things where that would come in would be let's say your diet's already in a good place you're exercising already and now you've got high blood pressure the diet seems to be good the training seems to be good but that blood pressure is still high the fact that you train the fact that you eat well does not negate the risk of that high blood pressure long term similarly something like cholesterol if you have a high level of ldl cholesterol that can be familial it can have genetic contributors and sometimes or in many cases diet will not be sufficient to get that to the optimal range to preserve your health long term and the problem is that for many people they become so entrenched in health and fitness and preventive health preventive health practices through training nutrition supplementation etc that they have an inherent bias against any sort of medical intervention I understand that because I felt that in the past myself. I believed that in the past myself. And I know that a lot of personal trainers are in a, in a similar position. It makes sense. This is your bread and butter, training and nutrition. And if you don't understand, you know, for example, the etiology of disease, it might be easy to think, well, yeah, you know, exercise can just prevent all these things. Because when we think about high blood pressure, if in many cases, blood pressure is related to lifestyle. But there are also genetic contributors to high blood pressure. There are um, different uh, variations like the level of aldosterone that you have, different hormones that can contribute to your blood pressure. So you can't be guaranteed that exercise and nutrition is going to be sufficient. So if you have this bias against medicine just across the board, then you might actually leave yourself in a worse position with your health despite doing all of these things proactively. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that is really important as personal trainers or as individuals it's really important to understand because the way i don't know we call it the health and fitness stuff is marketed you know training nutrition sleep stress management like you can kind of be left thinking that this is a panacea and to an extent it is right i think all of those interventions those foundational habits as we often call them they are like they are the baseline they are the foundational stuff you know you, you don't get to just opt out of them if you opt out of any of them you probably are more likely to you know be in a diseased state you know, reach a 
some sort of illness, right? Um, so it doesn't negate that if you then say, oh, well, I also need medication, right? It doesn't stop them being a panacea, right? The way I kind of think of it, the, the conceptual framework I use, I'm like, right, all of these things, they seem to be really, really effective for a multitude of different ailments in a preventative uh, perspective and then also a even in a treatment perspective, you know? Like very often uh, people discuss uh, training and nutrition and they're like, right, this is going to help with your cholesterol. This is going to help with X, Y, Z, right? And they do, right? Training especially seems to be an incredibly potent, like, intervention an incredibly potent if you could make that into a drug you'd be like wow this is this is phenomenal same with sleep same with good nutrition and same with stress management right so if you could put them all into a drug into a, a pill form you'd be on to a winner right but they're still shotgun approaches right they do a lot of different things some of the things they do incredibly well like if you're trying to manage i don't know your your blood sugar for example exercise phenomenal tool for that right has all these other things as well, right? Does all these other things. It's a shotgun approach, right? However, you don't always need a shotgun, right? Sometimes you need a, a sniper rifle, right? Sometimes you need to be incredibly precise in terms of what you're dealing with, right? You're going in clearing out trenches, shotgun, ha, phenomenal, right? <laughs> That's great, right? You're clearing out a room potentially, phenomenal. But if you're clearing out a room uh, and all you have is a shotgun and there's families in that room, you know, you probably don't want that shotgun, right? There's gonna be a lot of collateral damage, right? So we have these shotgun approaches, phenomenal tool, great. We should all be using them. We should all be doing health habits, these foundational habits that we discuss, but sometimes we need something more precise. Sometimes we need something more specific, right? And in those cases, that's medical intervention, drugs. I think uh, depression is a really good uh, case for this because you can have like whatever about the, the high blood pressure or cholesterol people will you know almost always say like oh diet nutrition training they're they're the tools we should be using for those and yes they should be part of the toolbox but i think for stuff like depression right very often people say oh well you just need to do these like foundational health habits and you're going to prevent depression right and that's just not the case like for example yourself not to bring in your case uh, specifically but like you know you were doing all these things right and you still have this you know, classification, we'll say, of having high-functioning depression, right? So what are you going to do? Are you going to train more? You know, that might be something that you want to do, which, you know, <laughs> but what are you going to do? Like train more. You're already training, whatever. That's 10 hours per week, right? Still have depression, right? We can do eat a better diet, eat, you know, higher quality diet. You're already eating a good diet. You're already doing all those things, you know? Oh, sleep more? Like maybe you could probably sleep more. You, you've been, especially yeah. with all the different things that you've got going on, you know, sleep could definitely be improved, but it's not like you're sleeping two hours per night every single night, right? So you're already doing a lot of these different things. And again, you can make an argument that doing a little bit more of them, that would be good. But very often it isn't like you need some more targeted intervention. For some people, that might be something like, you know, some sort of talk therapy, right? Where they're just talking to someone, right? For other people, it might be medication, right? So we have tools available to us. One of those tools is all those foundational health habits. I personally, I'm biased towards them. I think they're phenomenal tools, but that doesn't negate the fact that we have other tools available to us. And for certain populations at certain times, those other tools may be more beneficial maybe exactly what's needed and it isn't just exercise nutrition whatever absolutely so that brings us to number two which is that no intervention is without risk this applies to 
medicine, it applies to surgery, it applies to nutrition, and it applies to training, okay? So anytime you think about health intervention, you have to consider the pros and the cons, okay? What's the likelihood that I'm gonna benefit from this intervention? And what's the risk associated with this intervention? And then other things like economic factors, local access to the intervention, etc. okay? So, for example, people often think that, you know, if I have surgery for my joint pain, right? Like let's say I have a torn meniscus. Okay, surgery is obviously a great call, fix it. But not always, okay? So sometimes you can have surgeries for um, different joint problems that lead to further problems down the line. That might be worth it in the short term, you know, if you're an athlete and you need to get this sorted right away. There might be cases where the benefits are really marginal and they'd only be worth it for some people and not others. Um, there might be cases where if you intervene we don't know if this, let's say it's a small lump or a small tumor, we don't know if it ever would have caused someone harm, but it um, is something that the person feels they need to, to get rid of. It could cause the harm in future. What age are they? What's the surgical procedure like? What's their health like otherwise? And so on. This goes for medicine as well. Of course, the big topic of the last couple of years have been related to vaccination. You know, suddenly talking about health risks or risks associated with different interventions was very much at the front of the public mind and unfortunately what you see is a lot of media representation of the um, any complication that occurs so for example if you see an anecdote of this person had you know a covid vaccine or not, i probably shouldn't be using the word vaccine because it actually disincentivizes our podcast but anyway you you have the uh, covid vaccine and this person then got a stroke, let's say six months after that story then gets amplified in the media. And suddenly there's this idea that this is an entirely unsafe intervention, even though that might actually be an understood risk by the medical profession. And very often, if you actually listen and you're attentive, even if you're looking at something like Panadol, you're looking at antibiotics you're taking for a chest infection, or you're going for a very minor surgery, there are always risks that are made clear. If you read the risks in any medicine um, packet that you get, if you read the information leaflet, you'll see risks that are there. There'll be common things, there'll be rare things, and there'll be exceedingly rare things. And that's just something that you have to accept anytime you're engaging with medicine, anytime you're engaging with surgery. And also extends to the things that we often think are a lot more benign. So for example, there are cases every single year of people that end up with liver failure and sometimes die because of contaminated supplements, supplements that weren't regulated properly. And even the things that people think are so benign, like herbal medicines, you know, there's a lot of that in um, India, for example, with Ayurvedic medicine that's quite popular in India. And there's a hepatologist, a, a liver doctor that I follow on Twitter who's constantly sharing these case reports from these uh, supposedly benign or natural supplements and medicines that have caused his patients to have liver failure. So don't be fooled by the idea that something is natural. Don't be fooled by something not being made by pharma. There are risks of pharma, there are risks of surgery, there are risks of supplementation, and there are risks of exercise. Less so, but they still exist, okay? So any intervention is, is, contains risk. And you need to understand what that risk is for you. And often that means collaborative decision-making with a healthcare professional. And unfortunately, you just can't, you're often not going to be able to improve your, your, your health or get out of a state of disease without some risk associated with it. And that's just the nature of medicine.
Yeah, and this is really important to understand as a personal trainer, but obviously as an individual, just yourself. Like, first of all, people have different risk tolerances. Some people are going to be more accepting of higher risk things than other people. Like, for example, going under anesthetic, let's go for a general anesthetic. You'd be like, right, it's relatively fine. You know, like most people aren't going to die, but there is a non-zero chance that you could die and just never wake up from an anesthetic happens you know there's you know systems in place to minimize that happening but it happens you know you have different like genetic mutations different you know we're, we're basically just using a like oh well we think based on your body weight based on you know general metabolism this is enough of a dose could be too much for you right could be too little for you you know you hear these horror stories of people you know being effectively paralyzed but they're awake during surgery and they can feel absolutely everything they just can't move their body right so like even though you know, if you're going for some sort of surgery, some sort of you know intervention, whatever, in a medical sphere, maybe you go under general anesthetic and you're like, that's that's an okay trade-off. That's that's fine for me. I have to do it. I'm getting a colonoscopy. I don't want to <laughs> be awake for that, <laughs> right? Cool. But you might not be okay with that risk if you have to go under a general anesthetic for, I don't know, something like uh, breast augmentation, you know? You're like, okay, yeah, I would like to have bigger boobs, but... I don't want to go under a general anesthetic. I don't want to increase my risk of, you know, dying of some anesthetic related complication, right? And this also applies to nutrition, it also applies to training, right? Training, I think is a little bit easier to understand. You're like, okay, well, these moves are a little bit higher risk. Maybe I don't do those, you know, maybe, you know, I'm a 70 year old individual. I'm not doing like, snatches on a BOSU ball or something like that, right? You're like, okay, look, that's, you know, if I fall from this and break my hip, I, there's a strong chance I'm going to be dead, <laughs> right? So you're like, okay, you can understand that risk. You can understand that. You can be like, okay, I'm going to minimize the risk of, you know, catastrophic exercise failure or issues occurring, especially in the gym, it's very safe. Um, but when you're in a sporting context, you know, it's chaos, right? You've torn two hamstrings, uh, doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? Now that's largely because you're pretty bad at it, but you know it's a, it's a non-zero risk that you're going to get injured when you go to something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? You know, injuries are you know quite common in a combat sport, especially one that you have to actually physically touch someone all the time, like whatever about say boxing or striking or whatever, like you can effectively just get out of the way. And if you're really good, literally never even touch your opponent or rather your opponent never even touches you, right? Like. That can happen in something like grappling not the case you you kind of have to you have to you actually have to touch them right um but something like football people are like oh yeah, football i let my kids play football it's fine right football like such a huge risk injury like so many injuries you can get from having a little uh, kick about right you know so many so many potential injuries that you could get you see it all the time uh, both in like you know professionals and yeah, semi-professionals and then obviously just recreational footballers and um, so there's an injury risk there and you might think oh it's just football right but again that comes back to your risk tolerance right you know as personal trainers or coaches or whatever this is really important to understand because your risk tolerance might be completely different than the person you're coaching's risk tolerance right or if you're just a consumer of health and fitness information again your risk tolerance might be completely different than the person who's you know, trying to sell you something or trying to give you information about XYZ topic and their risk tolerance might be completely different than yours, right? Someone might say, oh yeah, like uh, 
you know, a high saturated fat diet is perfectly fine to eat. I eat like a carnivore diet, lots of butter, whatever, right? And they might be like, okay, I'm willing to be an experiment. I feel like maybe, maybe they do feel better eating a diet like that, right? Maybe they actually have all these different genes that actually protect them from having high LDL, right? They're just like, right, even if I did have this super high LDL, it's actually not an issue because I have all these other protective genes or whatever, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that that's your risk tolerance. That might be okay for them, but that doesn't mean that it's okay for you, right? And that's a bit of an extreme example, but even something that, you know, a lot of personal trainers use, like nutrition, something that we teach on our, like, nutrition course as well, um, is, you know, the use of stuff like, you know, tracking your calories and macros, right? You might be like, oh, it's fairly benign intervention. It's just, it's just understanding the, you know, the caloric and macronutrient, uh, whatever it is, the content in food, how is that a bad thing, right? But a lot of people get eating disorders as a result of calorie and macro tracking, right? Now, you could argue that maybe they had a disordered eating pattern or whatever before that, and that just, the, the calorie and macro tracking just exacerbated the issue or facilitated that issue. But either way, it is still a potential risk from something as you know benign as calorie and macro tracking. Like you might literally have or do calorie and macro tracking with every single individual that walks into your doors as a personal trainer, right? And if that's the only tool you have available to you, you're not serving your clients the, the best that they could be because again, it's a, it's a non-zero risk intervention. You, there's gonna be individuals that, not, it's not just their preference that they don't do that. It's actually something that could really severely cause harm for that individual if they were to do that, or they even have evidence of that. Like you know, previously, like I've had a lot of clients who've previously done like calorie and macro tracking and it's led to, or again, facilitated like severe mental health issues, right? So again, no intervention is without risk. Absolutely. And that's a good segue into number three, which is nutrition and training are not taught. And here's why that might actually be okay. Okay, because this is important. In the fitness industry, people talk about this all the time. They say doctors don't know anything about training and nutrition. And to some degree, that's true, okay? Um, depending on the profession, okay, as people specialize into different areas, they'll know more or less about different caveats or different areas of nutrition or training that might be of relevant to them. For, relevance to them. For example, if you're going to a cardiologist that specializes in, like, lipidology, they're probably going to know a bit about the way diet impacts LDL and atherosclerosis risk, etc. If you go to a diabetes specialist, they're probably going to know about a bit about the way diet and exercise is important there. But the reason I say it's okay as someone that's very biased towards exercise and nutrition is that there are other professions, okay? This is the whole point of us trying to elevate the profession of personal training and for personal trainers to play a bit more of a frontline healthcare role. Because the ideal is that your cardiologist, your neurologist, etc., that they don't have to learn about training and nutrition very much because they can say, I know a local personal trainer or I know a local physio or I know a local nutritionist or dietitian here in the hospital that can give you exactly what you need. Because what you want is that your doctor knows everything about the disease that they're diagnosing you with, about the process of treatment, about how to refer to others, etc., okay? That's what's actually most important. And during a medical degree, you know, people often cite these figures like doctors have less than X number of hours of nutrition education. But the question is, okay, let's say you want to have the have doctors have 
200 hours of nutrition education. What are you going to take it away from? Do you want them to know less about pharmacology? Do you want them to know less about anatomy? Do you want them to know less about physiology? Do you want them to know less about microbiology? Etc. 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 The thing is with a medical degree that's really difficult to understand from the outside is that you are trying to learn such a ridiculous amount of information going both broad and deep into different subjects so that you come out as somewhat of a generalist that can then specialize that adding anything else in is such a difficult decision to make because people will argue you should have more exercise education then people will argue you should have more nutrition you speak to physiotherapists they'll say that doctors don't know enough about um, musculoskeletal diagnosis you speak to a psychologist they'll say doctors should know more about psychology okay so as you go into these different areas that are very much related to medicine, you couldn't absolutely make a case that a doctor should know more about that individual area. But the problem is you can only do so much. So I think what's actually, what actually works better is conceptualizing a framework in which a doctor is actually really well able to do what is within their scope. If they happen to get more education and exercise and training and they understand that, that's fantastic. But what you really want a doctor to be able to do is to appreciate that there is a role for exercise and nutrition and then to refer on accordingly. Okay, so that's actually, that's kind of what people should focus on more is that rather than the doctor being able to like give you an exercise program, that they realize that, okay, this patient here that has problems with their heart, I'd love them them to be exercising because that's really good from a preventive perspective. And there's a cardiac rehab program that I can refer them to. Or if someone has a lung disease, there's a pulmonary rehab program I can refer them to, you know? So that's really what's far more important, I think, because you can make the case that any profession should know more about a wide array of things, like physiotherapists that are working with people, let's say, that have obesity and they might have joint problems related to their obesity. Should they know more about nutrition? Yeah, that would probably be beneficial. But again, where do you slot it into their education and what are you going to take it take away from? Because it's there has to be something taken away because trust me there's enough to learn in medicine yeah and this is something that you see a lot people will very often say oh doctors should know more about nutrition they should know more about training and that's fine but there's two things we have to think about here well there's there's three things first of all right you're an electrician right if you're an electrician you can fix the electrical circuits in a house you know how to do like diagnose what the issue is oh it's the it's this it's a blown fuse here whatever right? i'm not an electrician but they're like right cool i know what's going on i know how to fix the issue i know how to diagnose the issue right if i get a call up an electrician and go yeah my computer's broken right they're gonna go okay well like i can maybe do some things if it's an electrical fault here i can maybe do some testing i have some tools that maybe i could help diagnose the issue maybe i could help point you in the direction but that's not their speciality that's not the thing that they're focused on right now that electrician that i call up might have a huge amount of knowledge maybe really interested in you know computers how they work knows all the things right and can actually help me right and that can be the case with your doctor right they can be really knowledgeable about nutrition training whatever right that's the first thing, right? You're, you're asking the wrong person the question, right? Which brings me to the second thing, which is, why the fuck are you going to a doctor for nutrition training advice, right? But they, you already know, right? You're already saying, you're like, oh, they don't get enough uh, training on this. They don't get enough uh, teaching on this, right? So you already know they're coming at it from a knowledge deficit. But also, who, who the fuck said it was their job, right? Again, I'm not gonna go to that electrician and go, oh yeah, fix my computer and just presume they know what they're talking about, right? 
It was never in their teaching. It was never in their job title. It was never in their role, right? So as an individual, you, like you shouldn't expect your doctor to know that stuff, right? Which brings me to the third point. What the fuck are doctors talking about this stuff? Why the fuck are doctors positioning themselves as if they know about nutrition or training or whatever, right? Now, I understand, yeah, you might want to uh, help your client. You might be like, all right, actually, I want to provide them. I know exercise is important. I know nutrition is important. And I, I know I have like a, a knowledge deficit in this area. So how can I help them? Maybe you educate yourself on those different topics, right? But also you have to remember that you're just a normal human. You're probably going to fall victim to the same fucking stupid nutrition fallacies and training fallacies and stupidity that everyone else gets to. Now you would argue, you would hope that a doctor has a bit more, you know, scientific rigor and knowledge to be able to cut through a lot of the bullshit. They understand physiology, etc. that they'd be like, well, pff, this is actually just, this is just stupid, but that's not always a guarantee. You know, they might be a phenomenal surgeon. They might be a phenomenal whatever, right? That doesn't mean that they're going to be able to, you know, understand the nuances of nutritional science, for example, right? You wouldn't expect them to. It's not their, not their job, right? You're asking them to do the wrong thing, right? Current medicine, and I hate the way people talk about it, like this allopathic medicine uh, is really designed to treat these kind of like fast term illnesses, right? In terms of like, okay, cool, you've got cancer, right? That's gonna kill you in the next few months to a year. We know how to treat that, right? We have all these drugs, we have surgery, we have X, Y, Z, right? Might not always work, but at least we know, right? Uh, or we. We know how to treat it or at least think about treating it you break your arm cool they know how to do that this is a fast illness right it's like all right you've broken your arm i know how to set it i can get you on your way these kind of long-term illnesses they're not as well placed to deal with them right a lot of the stuff you know if you're coming to a doctor and you're like oh yeah i have uh, high cholesterol and you know it's you got your first testing at 50 right you've probably had high cholesterol since your 20s maybe even in your teens right so you've been you've had this for the last 40 years you know like, yeah, okay, now it's more of a concern because you're at a fucking 95% uh, blockage <laughs> uh, in one of your arteries. So yeah, it's, it's more of a fast-term thing, but the actual progression of the disease was a slow progression, right? And that's where the current medical sphere is not really well equipped to deal with. And that's where this stuff like preventative healthcare, preventative medicine, whatever fuck you want to call it, like really slots in, right? But again, it just comes back to that. Why the fuck are you asking your doctor to give you nutrition advice? Right? Why are you asking your doctor to give you training advice? That's not their job, right? If you are a doctor and you're giving out nutrition training advice, why? <laughs> right? Yeah, okay, you can definitely point to stuff like the eat well guide and be like, you know, this is what the government says, this is what nutritionists, dietitians, etc. have said is good. Fantastic. You know, I presume you're able to do stuff like that, right? But if you're giving the specific guidelines and you've never had education on it, like the absolute hubris to believe that you know more than people who have actually studied this stuff, right? And I know a lot of doctors do have uh, overconfidence issues despite uh, lots of shortcomings, but you surely have the, uh, you know, this Hippocratic oath of like, do no harm, where you're like, okay, that's, that's, I should probably make sure that I'm not harming the individual by giving them these shitty fucking training and nutrition, you know, advice that I just learned on fucking Instagram, which you see all the time, you know? Absolutely. And points four and five I'm going to make together pretty quickly, to be honest. And they are that medis this is kind of more for maybe wannabe medical students, because I know there are some of you. Like, medicine is both harder and easier than you think. So I'll explain that. Number one, it's 
harder because I think that you actually end up covering a lot more ground in a medical degree than you'd expect, even that I expected. And that, like that was coming from physio, that was knowing medical students, knowing doctors, like I didn't realize how much depth there would be in so many different subjects, okay? So that's that's the first thing. And there's not really too much else to say that that isn't that I haven't covered already because I already mentioned that, you know, there's so much depth to cover, like where would you take things away from, okay? So it's related to that point. It's harder than you think, but it's also easier than you think. And what I mean by that is that when you're studying a subject on your own, we've talked about this before, like self-education is great. I really like self-education. I know you do too, Patty. But when you have a specific framework to follow, you have exams, dates, deadlines, mentors, etc., and peers that are on the same path, it's, it's actually a lot easier to cover a lot more ground than you'd expect, okay? So when things are laid out well, um, in a formal education program and you have practical experience in terms of being in the hospital to reinforce it, you'd be surprised how much you can learn incredibly quickly. So that's kind of the paradox there. You end up learning a lot more than you could ever expect you'd fit into your brain. But you also think back and think, God, that actually, I'm surprised, I'm surprised that that happened, but it didn't feel like it. You know, four years flies by. Okay. So Bit of a paradox, but both those things are true, true, I think. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm a big fan of self-guided education, but I do think some form of directed education, even if it is self-guided, like say, for example, on our nutrition course, it's directed education in terms of, I'm like, right, you need to know all these different things. I don't care if you breeze through this. You're just like, right, I you know, already have a good, deep understanding of this stuff. I'm just going to hit the, like main points of it skim this watch the video fantastic see you later right i don't care if you do that it's it's at your own pace right you might be like right this is a completely new topic to me i need to spend way more time understanding this i'm going to read all the references extra readings and etc etc that these guys have provided right so having directed education is phenomenal right and the good thing about medicine at least from an outside perspective is that it is actually outcome based <laughs> right in terms of you have more immediate feedback, right? Because most people, when they interact with, you know, higher level education, it's, uh, they end up just doing a load of meaningless tasks. Like the vast majority of four year degrees could probably realistically be done in one year, right? Like the vast, vast majority of them, right? Now, some part of that you could argue is like, oh, well, you're supposed to be like, you know, learning to interact with others and, you know, you know, developing as an individual, I would argue that, you know, paying for university to basically get access to a social club is probably not the best use of your money um, and could be done in far better ways, like literally just join a social club, right? <laughs> um, or a sport or whatever, right? But it still has its advantages, right? But the way most people interact with the education, third level education, further education or whatever, is unfortunately they get exposed to a lot of just busy work. Just like, oh, write an essay on this thing and yeah, 2000 words or whatever, right? And it's meaningless at the end of the day. It's not actually teaching you anything like, yeah, it might teach you some kind of like soft skills in terms of like, oh yeah, you should use PubMed for research and you know, different things like that. But it's not actually teaching you what you're supposed to be learning. Whereas I feel like in medicine, you just don't have the time to waste. You don't have the time to be like, Oh yeah, we'll get you to do these like shitty assignments. Like I'm sure you do have lots of shitty assignments. You know, it's just that's the way universities in this day and age they 
they like to <laughs> like to work right it's just like it's administration basically right um but it's still way more outcome based in terms of you can see if you know stuff or you don't know stuff right like you're going to be you know here's a case study you know what are your initial thoughts on this explain your reasoning your rationale fucking whatever right what are you going to do how are you going to diagnose this person what testing what further testing etc right um and you're given this more immediate feedback and it's it feels or again from an outside perspective it feels like that's a lot less busy work and much more like application it's much more akin to like a, a trade like you'd learn to become a welder or something rather than learning to be like even like my degree in like biochemistry right it's just there's a lot of busy work you know it's like okay yeah you have to learn to do experimentation and fucking whatever but also i could just learn that in one class rather than an entire semester yeah i totally agree with your assessment totally agree and the next one number six is getting answers to niche questions about your health or your disease almost always requires a one-to-one -one interaction in some way or one-to-one -one attention and this is actually something that's that i wanted to discuss because it's a particularly modern problem we have such vast access to information but also such vast confusion and if you go online and ask you know how should i deal with my high cholesterol you're going to get such contrasting opinions even from people who have medical doctorates and PhDs in front of their name. So what I would suggest is that if you have an individual health problem, you have a disease, just get someone that is a specialist in that area. Ideally, of course, they're well trained and they're following the evidence, etc. to guide you on your individual case, because researching things online can be incredibly confusing, particularly because of this problem where there's different thresholds for treatment, okay? Not all problems get treated immediately. Not all problems require treatments. Not all problems are even problems depending on who you are, your current status. So I would encourage people that if you're having problems with your health, just try to get personal help. Try not to, you know, outsource to the hive mind. Sometimes that can be incredibly helpful, but in the vast majority of cases, if you just like go to your GP, get an appropriate referral, get the scans that are required or no scans if not required you're probably better off it can be frustrating it can be a slow process that's one of the things that people often get frustrated with is god it takes so long to see my gp and then get the referral totally appreciate that it can be frustrating but spending all of your time trying to self-diagnose and come up with solutions online just often leaves people worse off yeah and that's not to say that you shouldn't do that you know it's, yeah. it can be part of the process but I think it is way more beneficial for the vast majority of people to actually just talk to an expert. Yeah. Yeah. Getting access to the expert, again, it might take time, it might be whatever, like that's the trade-off if you want to have this like you know, socialized medicine that we have, it's like, okay, cool, like everyone wants access to these people, so join the list, right? The only circumvention of that is to have buckets of cash so that you can get <laughs> uh, private, you know, you can consult with these experts because you're paying them, right? So that's the trade-off. If you have buckets of cash, go straight to the source. You can pay, you can get a consultation, right? That's the system that we have. If you don't have buckets of cash, again, just you have to join the queue, right? You might be pushed ahead of the queue because, you know, the issue is more, you know, immediate or whatever, but it's still a queue, right? Um, but even outside of medicine, I think this applies to so much. Like obviously we coach a lot of individuals for health and fitness stuff. And obviously we would say this is part of the healthcare system, etc. But you know, it, you see night and day differences in terms of 
when people come to us, they've been like, oh, I've been doing my training, I've been doing my nutrition myself for the last couple of years, and like, I'm just, I've never been able to crack it. I haven't been able to like really get the, the, you know, the, the information that I need. I haven't been able to get the results that I want, etc. And they come to us, they work with us for a couple of weeks, and they're like, fuck, you've, you've really shown me exactly what I need. You've really shown me exactly what needs to be done, what boxes I need to take, and you know, you've, you've really, you know, brought the process down to an individual level and shown them the key things that they need to focus on, shored up the key weaknesses that they have so that they can actually get the results, right? And some of this is a self-discovery process. Like they're like, oh, well, I've, I've learned these things about me. I, I know this exercise doesn't work for me or whatever. So again, we're not saying that a, a self-discovery you know, stuff is, is bad, right? But if you have someone that is educated in the topic that you can communicate with this stuff, fuck, it makes it so much easier. You know, like if I had an injury, like I just, you know, got a, a crippling injury, that's going to be a long-term injury. Like I know a lot about rehabbing injuries. I've rehabbed so many people's injury or helped in that process. You know, I know how physiology works. I know how the human body reacts to different stimuli and the adaptations that I potentially would want for, you know, rehabbing a, a long-term injury. I would still refer out and get someone else to guide the process, you know? Um, and I know you might say that's my privilege in terms of being like having you know, money and stuff to be able to do that, but it's still emblematic of what we're talking about where like I have the knowledge and you know, maybe I could do it myself, but being able to just discuss things and you know, get the help of someone that's an expert in this field, like there is no comparison. Check. And next up is kind of circles back to something we discussed previously, but it's just the idea that preventative medicine includes medicine okay this is really important because if you're trying to adopt a wholly preventative approach and it only includes training and nutrition you're actually missing out on a lot of things easy examples again like vaccination is just such an easy example like let's take hpv and cervical cancer the population studies on the effect of like mass hpv vaccination it shows a dramatic drop in cervical cancer rates that is really important because it's a cancer that can kill women at a very young age, okay? And that's not nice. No one wants that. And HPV has been incredibly effective there. It's also basically eradicated genital warts because HPV, again, causes genital warts, which is just a nice little benefit that people get as well. So these are just examples. Like, there's loads of other vaccines like people are, would be familiar with. But that's just one example of where medicine actually fits in with a preventive approach. Similarly, if we're talking about blood pressure, because this is something that people that often don't think about. They think that, you know, this is like, like blood pressure. Okay, we're treating blood pressure. You don't treat blood pressure for blood pressure's sake. Okay, if someone has high blood pressure, you're treating it to prevent complications down the line, like heart disease, like stroke, etc. Okay, so it's still a preventative of approach to measure and treat blood pressure even if it includes medication that's still preventative medicine you're preventing a future disease state the same with something like statins if someone needs to take a statin because they have high cholesterol that's preventative medicine you're preventing heart disease down the line okay so i think sometimes there's that dichotomy between like reaching for a medicine to treat the disease versus doing something with your lifestyle to prevent disease medicine also prevents disease that's a really really important point yeah and i think personal trainers actually 
you know, don't really grasp this a lot of times. Like they'll do things, which is not necessarily inherently bad, but they'll be like, they'll be talking to a client and they're like, oh, my client, the client is saying like, oh, they're on blood blood pressure lowering medications. And the personal trainer will be like, cool, we're gonna be able to get you off of those things, right? You know, you don't need to take those things. We're gonna, we're gonna do exercise, nutrition, et cetera, and get you off all of those medications. And that might be a goal for that individual, right? That it very much might be the case where they're like, look, I really don't like taking them. Maybe I get some side effects of them uh, or from them. And, you know, I just don't like the cost, you know, especially if you're in a different medical care system that, you know, isn't like the Irish or the English system or whatever. And you're like, all right, you know, it's just, it's just not for me. I want to be off these medications, right? Yeah. If you can play a role in that as a personal trainer, happy days. However, you know, if these drugs are helping prevent disease for that individual, you don't necessarily need to come off them, right? Yeah, for sure. We want to monitor how we're getting on. You know, if you're going to be like, all right, we lost some weight, you know, we made changes to the diet, you know, you have like a, a lower sodium diet, you know, you're managing your, your water intake, for example, different things like that, where you're like, oh, all these things help with blood pressure. And you've got them to a level where, you know, maybe they don't need blood pressure, blood pressure lowering medications anymore. Happy days, right? But I think personal trainers get very caught up on thinking like, oh, I want to be able to get my clients to a stage where they no longer should need medications, you know? And it's a noble like outcome, right? And for something like blood pressure lowering medications, you know, potentially that's, you know, relatively easily achievable, right? Um, but it does pervade into all these other fields. People are like, we'll get you off those statin medications with just dietary interventions, you know, and exercise, right? And, you know, both of those things are, you know, beneficial in uh, lowering your LDL cholesterol at least. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to get over your like fucking familial hypercholesterolemia. You know, it's like there's some people are just going to need to be on medications as a personal trainer. You don't need to take people off medications or promise that you're going to get people off medications or even have that as an outcome. You know, again, you can be supportive of it, but if we are going to move into this like healthcare approach to personal training, you have to realize that the doctor does also know what's best for the client right? Like they put them on this medication for a reason, right? And if you're going to be someone that the doctor trusts to refer out to, like you need to be educated or smart enough to realize that I don't, I don't need to promise my client that I'm going to take them off their blood pressure lowering medication, you know? Yeah. And, and the important thing for both trainers and doctors is to remember the goal. What's the goal? The goal is to live well for as long as possible, okay? We want to, pr to promote health span and lifespan. And sometimes I think people get attached to the wrong goal. They get attached to promoting these things, but via certain methods. We see this in personal training all the time. But in this case, the doctor might be thinking, you know, I don't really want to, I don't really want to focus too much on nutrition or training or supplements or whatever, because Oh, that's all quackery, all that stuff. I'll just focus on what I do. And then a the personal trainer might be saying, oh, I, I want to make sure that they adopt just this like natural approach. So you're focused more on attaching the goal to the method rather than the goal to, with the outcome. Because the outcome is really what's important for the client or for the patient. It's similar to what we talk about when, if someone's trying to build muscle, what's the goal? To build muscle. So if a low volume works for, approach works for you patty and you've always found that that just worked better for you and i find that a high volume approach works better but we're saying that 
oh, well, at triage, we only promote low volume approaches, so I'm only going to focus on that. Well, then we're not sticking to the goal. We're getting attached to the method. So that applies to both training, both personal training and to medicine as well, I think. 100%. So that brings us to something that was a theme in our discussions at triage before I ever did medicine, which is that an abnormality, whether it be on a scan, on a blood test or anything else, does not necessarily imply the need for treatment. Really important. This is something we've talked about a lot in relation to pain and injury in the past. So for example, you go for a scan and it says, oh, you've got an L4, L5 disc degeneration, or it, it shows some sort of tendinopathy-like changes in your adductor, let's say, or you've got a little bit of arthritis in your knee. The presence of these things, one, does not necessarily correlate with symptoms. Two, does not necessarily correlate strongly with that getting worse or progressing to symptoms in the future. It obviously increases risk, but it doesn't, it's not one-to-one. -one. And then three, it doesn't necessarily require treatment really important because this is something that we've talked about in relation to injury in the past in those examples but also applies to more medically focused topics examples would be you could get an mri for an unrelated problem and then a small little lump is identified let's say in your liver or identified in your lung or identified in your adrenals and this is something that's been identified it's not clear whether or not this is going to progress to anything like cancer over time. It's benign for now. We can't predict the future, but a doctor might make the assessment that this is a common finding that we see. It's very rare that it's going to progress. We'll monitor. It doesn't necessarily require treatment. Okay. Similar things would be like thyroid lumps, for example. People might freak out. They think, oh my God, my thyroid. It might be totally benign and might not require any treatment. Other common examples in medicine would be things like cancers in older age so for example the presence of um prostate cancer in an older man or the presence of a breast cancer in an older woman sometimes these things don't even get treated because it comes back to what we discussed earlier in terms of risks and benefits that the 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 risks and the effect of quality of life on quality of life of undergoing treatment would actually outweigh any benefit that the person is going to have within their lifetime so they would have died with the cancer without it becoming symptomatic. So that's something that's really important and is really nuanced and individual to every individual case. But I think it's actually quite a powerful realization. Yeah, I don't know anything to add to that because spot on. Perfect. And number nine, doctors, in, in inverted commas, are far from a homogenous group. Okay, this is really important because I see this all the time online. People say, doctors believe doctors think all doctors are like this it's just not true okay that's a that's something that people think before they go into medicine for example only the let's say it's it's only the nerd that's only the real like book nerds that end up going to medicine you know um or if you're in medicine maybe it's that all people are of a particular political affiliation or all people have these beliefs these things do um exist to some degree like for example if you think about uh, like political views, like most doctors are, have left-wing, more liberal uh, political views. But what's so interesting is that if you look at studies on like uh, political views or views on different uh, social and political topics among different professions, you actually see a, 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 a kind of a predictable distribution where surgeons um, who generally tend to be more male also tend to be more 
conservative. So you have more conservative surgeons, generally more kind of right wing or libertarian leaning beliefs. And, and that then becomes more extreme in certain surgical professions, for example, neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery. If you compare that to something like, let's say, pediatrics, psychiatry, and some other um, medical professions tend to be more left-leaning liberal uh, people, okay? That's interesting because it, it, it ties in with like the kind of psychological profile that you ex expect to affiliate with some of those groups. And that doesn't mean, again, that everyone, every surgeon is like right-wing, like Republicans or anything, far, far, far from it, but you see a distribution there. And that's, that's something that's important because, you know, I think sometimes people think that doctors are a particular type of person, but a doctor, it's not an adequate descriptor because medicine is a really, really broad field. And the difference between someone like a pediatrician uh, versus a radiologist versus a pathologist versus a surgeon, they actually have very often there's clear and sometimes predictable stereotypical personality differences between these individuals. And that's something that I think is important to grasp. Yeah, and also it is one of those things where whenever you hear someone say like, all people in this group believe this, like if you're like, all feminists believe this, yeah. all fucking Nazis believe this, like yeah. all X group believe this, you know, it's, you know, that raises some questions, right? It raises some questions about the person stating that, it raises some questions about Okay, well, why do all of the people in this group, you, you're telling me there's absolutely no dissent in this group. There's no questioning this disbelief. You know, I'm not, I'm like, even 99%, you know, are we saying like, it's literally every single last one, right? There's not even one guy that's like, no, nah, I don't, I don't think that, you know? Like, even in like, when they, they market to you and they're like nine out of 10 doctor or nine out of 10 dentists, you know, recommend this, whatever <laughs> toothpaste you know it's like they said 10 out of 10 i'd be like you know did you did you pay these people did you did you like just get rid of all the people that said no you know so you know, just from a the, the, you know they always say the classic like sniff test like you know is it is this t-shirt t-shirt good to wear oh yeah it's, it's fine you know like that kind of all or nothing kind of mentality thinking about certain professions or certain beliefs or whatever like it just doesn't pass the sniff test. You know, like, I, I just, I find it very hard to believe that everyone is the exact same. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something that applies to like personal trainers as well, because I think, you know, some people have stereotypes about personal trainers that they're these like, you know, they're these gym bros that just shout at people and tell them to work harder and don't pay any attention to like social contributors to health. And it's like, no, not not all personal trainers okay same for doctors right so that brings us to the final point which is again related to the process of studying medicine but also relative relevant to anything that you're pursuing yourself and that is that you can do more than you think you're capable of really important because i never thought i'd be a doctor what i, I still i'm thinking what the hell how'd that happen you know how do we get here and like i was not that guy in school that, that's not how i grew up when i was in secondary school in, in first year you know kind of some of my friends you know kind of kind of messers you know boys lads kind of crack would be going on and like my one of my teachers at the time the first parent teacher meeting i had in secondary school he said to my dad he was like 
look, like Gary's just not the academic type. Like it's just it's just not really for him. That's not who he is. And my dad think that's thinks that's hilarious now. But that's important because it goes back to what I said about like doctors are not a homogenous group. Okay, you don't have to you don't have to be the the nerd. Um, similarly, you don't have to be like the jock meathead to be a personal trainer. Okay, there's different ways of of living in the world, different ways of presenting yourself in the world, and that's fine. And whatever it is that you're pursuing, you can probably do a lot more than you think you're capable of. And not to count yourself out because of, you know, whatever it is, the the way that you grew up, where you grew up, you know, the, the color of your skin, whatever. These things are not discounting factors from you being able to become the person that you want to be. So drive it on. 100%. Anyway, Gary, I don't have anything to add to the top 10 things that you learned uh, from your <laughs> medical education. Um, so if you want to wrap this up, tell people where they can find us, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so as always, guys, well, not as always. Right now, we have a lot of coaching spaces available. I've just finished medicine, as you may have gathered in this uh, conversation, and I've got a lot of availability myself. The other coaches have availability as well. So if you'd like to work with us, now is a good time. We're coming into the summer. Some of you might have maybe quieter time at work. It might be a great time to focus on your goals. So if you'd like to work with us for training, nutrition, rehab, or all of the above, you can get in contact at the link below, pop in your details, and uh, you'll find all of our client testimonials and everything down there as well if you visit our website. So other than that, we put out a lot of free content. You guys know that. We've got the Triage Method newsletter. I hope you're subscribed. We're putting out the podcast weekly, so make sure you're following. Leave a rating and review if you like it. Share it if you like it as well. We put out a lot of stuff on social media at Triage Method and on our own individual pages, so make sure you're following on socials along with our YouTube channel, the Triage Method YouTube channel. And then finally, we still have our nutrition course open for anyone that would like to become a certified nutritionist or nutrition coach with triage. So if you'd like to level up your nutrition knowledge, maybe you're a doctor listening to this and you're thinking, you know what, we actually didn't get much nutrition education, but I mean, I'm gonna subscribe to the boys. Then yes, we do have uh, course spaces available as well. Yeah, I should just note on that, that the course is closing yep. relatively soon. Like there's no definitive close date as of right now. Um, but we're going to be going through some massive updates for it. Um, not that it isn't already absolutely phenomenal, um, but there's a lot of things that myself and Gary and the team have been discussing in terms of what we would like to see in there, what things we think could really enhance the experience. I've been chatting to a few people that are already on the course and they're you know, getting their feedback, being like, okay, well, I didn't really understand this topic, so maybe we're gonna flesh that you know, section out a little bit or whatever, right? Um, so some massive updates coming, but to really you know put those updates into practice we need to close the course for a while you know it's probably going to be closed for about six months and then when it opens again it's the price is probably going to go up because it'll have got a massive update and <laughs> um, so if you're interested in locking in the current price you kind of need to act fast you know i wish i could give you a definitive date being like oh it's going to close on this date but we haven't decided on that exactly uh, right now we're going to be deciding on that next week the week that this podcast comes out um, but as of right now we don't have a definitive close date but you need to kind of uh, act fast if you're interested yes sir and that's it fantastic anyway guys we will see you in the next one